Well, if you would turn with me to Daniel chapter 8, uh, we're going to cover the whole chapter this evening. It's sort of a sequel to the vision that Daniel had and reported in chapter 7. Uh, One of the the tricky things I was running into this week was, um, I have to admit, I I read this and and I said, what does this really add? On first glance, it doesn't feel like it necessarily adds a whole lot to what Daniel has has seen in chapter 7. Um, but as I spent a little time and read commentaries and things, uh, all of a sudden I had like nine things that could have all been main points of this sermon. Um, and, and I say that not to, um, not to sandbag or to uh, cast any, any doubt on, on this passage, but, but just to say that um, sometimes you do come to hard passages, but all that is required sometimes is a little time. Uh, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, God didn't give me something to say about this passage because I have a master of divinity or anything, but simply because he's good to his people. And so when you run into difficult passages in scripture, you can ask people. Um, You don't need a fancy education in order to understand God's word, but you do need him. You need him to enlighten the eyes of your heart, as it says in Ephesians 1 or 2, I forget which chapter. That's all that we need, so... But here is the reading of God's word. This is Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was none who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the ghost had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power." Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, 
For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over to, of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evening and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is the word of the Lord. So here we are in the third year of Belshazzar's reign, and we can imagine it's been a rough time for Daniel. Uh, likely by this point, he's already been shunted aside from his uh, high position as he held under Nebuchadnezzar, and he's been stuck in some cubicle farm counting beans or the Mesopotamian equivalent, because the king just doesn't hold him in high regard and doesn't even know that he exists. Now, Daniel's already seen one vision, and he was really alarmed at the implications for God's people for the future. But that vision from chapter 7 was, in many ways, it was relatively vague. Uh, it describes a succession of kingdoms without explicitly identifying them, and its timeline in particular is left quite vague. And so two years later, Daniel has this second vision, and in many ways, it's a sequel to the first one, um, really intensifying uh, and, and zooming in on some of the events that are recorded in the first vision. For this second vision only covers a, a certain portion of the first vision's time, and it starts to add a lot more detail. Uh, now, with, with the perspective of history behind us, we we have almost universal consensus that the second vision is covering those second and third kings of 
Daniel's first vision. Um, but here's the thing. It doesn't just add historical detail to the first vision. One of the key lessons that Daniel learns is that the persecution of God's people is not only reserved for the end of history, but instead we're going to see that persecutions will arise periodically, and sometimes when least expected. And on the contrary, we also see that sometimes maybe when you're expecting persecution to come, God in his providence and mercy makes it so it doesn't come. But we'll get into those things. But the first thing is that Daniel sees that he's not in Babylon anymore. In this vision, he's been transported 200 miles to the east, to Susa, uh, which was a seat of power uh, of the neighboring Persian Empire. And so it's funny that, that Daniel, this former high-ranking Babylonian official, is now being shown things that it seems like shouldn't concern him at all. Um, and in fact, Babylon isn't going to figure in this new version at, at all. And so, so what's the point? Why does a disgraced Babylonian official find himself in Susa? And I think that it's sending a message to Daniel that you can't let the things right in front of you blind you to the fact that things you least expect can be coming down the pike. Um, Daniel knows Belshazzar. Daniel knows that Belshazzar is not a righteous man like Nebuchadnezzar was. But the fact that Belshazzar and Babylon don't figure in this vision I think are meant to tell Daniel, Belshazzar is mostly harmless. Belshazzar is going to disappear from the scene without comment. And the next kingdom will simply rise in his place. And so it's important to remember, you don't know where the next challenge or the next threat is going to come from. Daniel's focused on Belshazzar because that's who's in front of him. But things that, always, that sometimes may appear to be threatening don't always turn out to be. So you always be vigilant. But you don't be surprised when God grants relief from your expected threat before it even arrives. And yet in this vision, Daniel does see that there are threats coming. So again, God's people must be vigilant must be ready to exercise faith in God at all times. After all, even in the case of Belshazzar, Daniel was ready to tell Belshazzar the truth and tell Belshazzar that he was about to be struck down when Daniel finally comes face to face with him on the last day of his reign. And the confidence for that kind of vigilance comes from recognizing that God is in control. And so, as we look at this particular vision of Daniel's, we're going to take a brief sketch of the sort of time of history, the time of, of history that's revealed in Daniel's vision. And, so from, and then from there, we're going to take a look at three observations. First, not every potential threat comes to pass. Second, that there is a heavenly significance to events here on earth. And third, that, yes, some threats do come to pass. And the evil activities of Antichrist will occur before the end. 
but God will have them under control. So first, just a brief overview of the real-world history uh, referred to in this vision. Um, if, if you want a lot more detail, then you can ask Charles and Gary, because they've actually studied this stuff. Uh, but, but Daniel finds himself in Susa, right? 200 miles to the east of his adopted home of Babylon. Um, Susa, as we said, was a, was a capital of the Persian Empire. Uh, and for now, Daniel's vision is not referring to events close to his own time and place. And so Daniel sees a ram with two horns, and, and Gabriel tells Daniel in verse 20 that this ram refers to the kings of Media and Persia. And so they, ha- they have two rams indicating each kingdom, uh, and they're lifted high, showing a, a, a joint kingdom on, on the warpath, ready to conquer. And, and in fact, it says that nobody... Uh, is able to stand before them, and nobody is even able to ally with their enemies to help stand before them. Um, One horn is higher than the other. Uh, We think that this reflects the fact that um, Persia was the more powerful partner between the Medes and the Persians, uh, because Cyrus, the Persian uh, conqueror, conquered the Medes and incorporated them into his own empire. And it charges west, conquering Babylon, Syria, Asia Minor. charges north, conquering Armenia and the area of the Caspian Sea. And to the south, Cyrus's son uh, conquers Egypt and Ethiopia. And even after that, this empire continued to conquer more and to absorb more lands, and so nobody was able to stand before them. But, But a couple hundred years later, something changes. This goat arise, which Gabriel says refers to the Greek Empire and to Alexander the Great. Um, He conquered more territory more quickly than you could imagine. He conquered basically from uh, from Greece, from Macedon, to uh, to northwest India in just ten years. Uh, Just an astonishing speed referenced by the fact that the goat's hooves don't even touch the ground as it charges eastward. Alexander takes over the entire Persian Empire and Egypt. And yet, at the peak of Alexander the Great's strength, as he is taking his troops back home for rest before going on to conquer further, in Babylon he just suddenly dies. Uh, and, and nobody knows exactly why. There's, it's possible that he was poisoned, but he may have just succumbed to the incredible expenditure of energy. And so at the age of, 20, of 32, this incredible conqueror, at the peak of what should be his career, he just dies. But he leaves in history, he left no obvious or legit, legitimate heir, and so eventually, you know, the generals carved up his kingdom and four power blocks appeared as the one horn in Daniel's vision becomes four horns. Uh, Cassander ended up as king over Macedonia, uh, Lysimachus under, uh, over Pergamon, uh, Seleucus over Mesopotamia and Central Asia, uh, Asia, and Ptolemy over Egypt. Now, through all of this, uh, after the Jews returned from exile and returned to Jerusalem, conditions have actually been relatively tolerable for them. 
Now, yes, they longed for the Messiah to come and restore Israel to its power, right? And yet the Persian, the Ptolemaic, and the Seleucid empires were all relatively tolerant of local customs. And so the Jews were able to practice their faith, again, relatively unmolested. And so we see here that in God's mercy, not every possible threat comes to pass, but everything changes when this little horn arrives which we know from history is the king Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king. It says here in verse 9 that he grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Antiochus expanded his empire to Egypt in the south, to Elamis and Armenia in the east, and he took Jerusalem away from the Ptolemaic kingdom. But in verses 23 through 25, we get a picture of a king who... Um, did not get his throne, gain his throne legitimately, but by cunning, by deceit. For Antiochus Epiphanes was not the legitimate claimant to the throne of the Seleucid Empire. So while the rightful heir to the throne was, it was a hostage of Rome, Antiochus first seized the throne by declaring himself co-regent with an infant heir to the throne, also named Antiochus. But then Antiochus Epiphanes murdered little Antiochus and so declared himself king. So he may have been powerful, but it was not his own power. And he was not a good guy. And he ended four centuries of toleration of Jewish faith and practice. For in the temple, he ordered that Zeus be worshipped. He slaughtered those who refused to worship Zeus. And tens of thousands of faithful Jews died in the battle. Antiochus outlawed circumcision. He ordered pigs to be sacrificed on the temple's altar. He put a stop to the rightful uh, worship of God, to the daily offerings and the, and the festival calendar. And this reference to throwing the truth to the ground is likely a reference to him burning the scrolls of the Torah, burning the scrolls of God's word. And this is where we see Antiochus challenging even God himself, the prince of the host in verse 11, overthrowing the sanctuary, putting a stop to the burnt offerings. It, this guy is a madman and he seems unstoppable, but even so his reign is cut short. There's some debate whether these 2,300 evenings and mornings refer to 2,300 days or 1,150 days. I think the most natural meaning is 2,300, uh, referring to roughly seven years between when Antiochus installed a puppet high priest in 171 and the restoration of Jerusalem in the Maccabean revolt in 164. Um, some people think it's half that, referring to the time from, of the violence beginning in Jerusalem in 167 to the Maccabean revolt in 164. But either way, the prophetic time in apocalyptic literature is never really meant to be something you set your calendar by. We deal here with round and symbolic numbers, and the main point is that no matter how you count the days, God has appointed a definite end for this round of persecution. He remains in control, and he will be vindicated. He will be shown to be righteous and holy and glorious and powerful when the sanctuary is restored to its rightful state. And that's the story of the Maccabees and how Hanukkah came to be, 
but that's a story for a different time. And so the angel instructs Daniel in verse 26 to seal up, meaning to preserve, not to hide, but to preserve the vision. For this vision refers to events that come a long time from Daniel's own time, and God's people must be prepared when the threat eventually comes. So that's a broad overview of the history. And now a few observations. So first is this. Not everything that seems threatening actually turns out to be a threat. For we saw the ram and the goat and the four horns. They turned out not to be all that bad for God's people. Now, it's certainly true that these kings were not the Messiah that God's people longed for, right? It's always tempting to look to whatever power appears, whatever powerful figure you can align yourself with and say, that's the one, that's the king that we're looking for. And we know that there were people among God's people who, who did that. E even under Antiochus, there were Jews who thought it would be better to go along with Antiochus, Epiphanes, and, and, and try to, to find a way to make peace with him and, and, uh, and, and cooperate with him. We know from Jesus' own time that there, there was a faction of Jews, the Sadducees, uh, want, like they believed that, that the king coming from Rome was God's Messiah. And so I believe that that's what this cooperation is referring to in verse 12, saying a host will be given over to the little horn together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. Um, the offerings began to be offered in Antiochus's honor, and, and, and you know, he, um, uh, using the power that he had, to change the practices, to change the customs, to change the religion to suit him and his purposes rather than God's. And so I believe that the transgression here is cooperating with the king who positions himself directly as an enemy of God and his people. And so while Jerusalem's inhabitants would be right to look at the Persian and the Greek and the Ptolemaic kings with a wary eye, this passage shows that there's still a distinction to be made between them and a character like Antiochus Epiphanes. The first three are not charged with rising up against God himself. They're not the power that God's people should trust in. But they're not the ones that go directly against God either. They just come and go as all world leaders do. And so even in our day, there are government figures, social movements, philosophical schools of thought, that gain ascendancy in our world. And, and just as the Jews needed to be clear these other kings were not their Messiah, we need to be clear that these schools of thought and these powerful people uh, are not going to save us. They're not our Messiah. They don't teach true Christian doctrine. They may teach some things that are true, but they don't teach what we need. So we need to be clear about that. But we also need to remember some things will just come and go. And in his providence, God will give them relatively little power to oppose the church. And so not every possible threat we see coming deserves an all-out war, even if they deserve wariness and being ready to, to, to prosecute that war if need be. But not everything's going to rise to that level. But second, we do see that events here on earth have a heavenly significance. 
For there's a really interesting contrast between Daniel's first vision in chapter 7 and his second vision here. Uh, Daniel 7 sees kingdoms, yes, on earth at first, but then a huge portion of the vision is consumed with things happening in heaven, in the heavenly court, the coronation of the Son of Man, right? The, the trial uh, of, of the little horn. But this second vision here in chapter 8 is almost entirely set on earth. And yet, these earthly events have heavenly significance. As we see the little horn in verse 10, throwing to the ground some of the host and the stars of heaven. And in verse 25, we see him rising up to challenge God himself, the prince of princes. For violence against the saints here on earth is violence against heaven, and God takes it seriously. The saints are his citizens. It says in verse 10 that Antiochus will throw some of the stars to the ground, and we see other places where God refers to uh, his children, to his people as as stars. Even here in, in Daniel chapter 12, he does it. And so verse 10 draws, uh, draws our attention heavenward to see that when, when God's people are being dealt bitterly with, that's a heavenly matter. That's not just an earthly matter. But how is that, how is that so? It, Antiochus isn't a spiritual being. He can't rise up to heaven and and. and draw his sword into God's face? Well, there are, there are two answers, and, and both of these answers have lessons for us today. So first, he goes against God by attacking the temple and its worship. For the temple is the place on earth where God makes his dwelling place among his people. So when Antiochus desecrates the temple, uh, he is bringing his wickedness and his violence directly into the presence of God. And that provokes God's wrath on account of his holy character. But today, we who are Christians are made by the Holy Spirit into God's dwelling place. We read about this in Ephesians 2, where where the, the church is being knit together by the Holy Spirit into a dwelling place for God, with Christ Jesus as our cornerstone. And so, we all have a responsibility to seek the peace and purity of the church just because it's God's dwelling place. And yet the world's uh, powers and philosophies and schools of thought often seek to disrupt our peace, teach us to distrust one another, to regard each other as enemies, even when we disagree on something that Scripture leaves to the liberty of our consciences. Out in the world around us, adherence of philosophies across the, so, the uh, social and political spectra um, uh, demand perfect adherence to man-made laws, and there's no forgiveness available for those who violate them. And yet here in the church, we often do the same thing. If you offend me, there is no forgiveness available to you. And so we harbor grudges and start wars within Christ's body, within God's temple. Even though we all know that God has forgiven us much, and made peace between us and him. And so we often attack God's presence by disrupting the peace among the church and by allowing others to, tr- to teach us to disrupt peace in the church. But we also fail to seek the purity of the church. For, look, the world wants to teach us that uh, all kinds of sex is okay. 
you can cheat on a test and it's not so bad. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, and you do what you need to to get on top, even if it takes bribery and extortion. And look, in, in, so, in some of these areas, we in the church resist these pressures well. But in others, we don't so much. Do we teach each other to use uh, power and, and, and whatever other gifts that we have for the benefit of others rather than for our own? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Do we teach each other to be generous and, and not to simply acquire wealth just because? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, do we learn to defend the good name of others? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Or, as we find out more and more as time goes on, how do we often handle it when we find out an under-shepherd has been abusing one of the sheep? Often we try to sweep it under the rug, rather than confront that person with their sins and call them to account for it. And this too, these things are all bringing impurity into the presence of God. Because again, we, the church, are God's dwelling place on earth. And so the little horn's earthly war has heavenly significance because he attacks God's dwelling place. But the second reason that it has heavenly significance is because he attacks the saints who are citizens of heaven. For why did Christ go to the cross? He went to the cross to receive for himself a kingdom full of his people, to redeem us from our sins, to make us citizens and children of God. But his kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. And so when you trust in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, he doesn't only make you right with God. He makes you a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom with all of the benefits and privileges and blessings that that entails. Paul, Peter writes, you are a holy nation. You are God's people. And so one aspect of having a king is that the king gives you his protection. Jesus proved himself worthy to be king by going to the cross and all authority, all power in heaven and on earth is his. And so when one of his citizens comes under attack, he must respond. He may respond quickly or, as it may seem to us, slowly, but he will and must respond because he has made you holy. He's made you right. He's made you one of his people. And his justice and his love for you as your king demands that he defend those whom he has made right. By his blood, Jesus made you citizens of a holy and heavenly kingdom. And so every attack against you is an attack against heaven, and God will respond. And so we come to the final observation from this passage, that yes, there will be these fierce opponents of God who arise from time to time before the very end. Now you remember that in chapter 7, history culminates with a little horn attacking God's people, but then being brought to justice in God's court. And then the Son of Man will give his eternal kingdom to his people. But the little horn here in Daniel, uh, chapter 8, isn't referring to that event. For the time of the end referred to in this vision is the end of this particular phase of indignation. And as we know from history, the last severe persecution of God's people before the appearance of Christ the Messiah. 
And yet it's not for nothing that, that both terrible opponents in these visions are represented as little horns. It does invite us to make a comparison between them. So maybe in chapter 8 you could think of this little horn as a little, little horn. It's imitating the little horn of chapter 7. Not the same historical figure, but an imitator. For as 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. There are many little a Antichrists coming and acting in imitation of the capital A Antichrist. And they will rise and fall before the end. And Antiochus may have persecuted God's people before the coming of Christ, but he still fits the template of a little a antichrist. And yet, the reign of terror over God's people only lasts for so long, and it is God who puts his reign to an end. But be aware, the activity of antichrist can take so many forms. I mean, there's the form of overt persecution. Antiochus fits that mold. The Roman Empire persecutes the church at several different times. And to, today, there's persecution against God's people in places like China, North Korea, and elsewhere. But there are other ways that Antichrist can go about their work, too, and it's through subverting the peace and purity of the church. Remember, there were Jewish people who collaborated with Antiochus, even as he persecuted them. In Jesus' time, like I said, there was a group of people who believed the Messiah was coming from the Roman Empire. And to this day, there are ways that we are all tempted to substitute the laws and beliefs of this world, the principles of this world, the worldviews of this world for genuine Christian faith. And the world is very sneaky. You can squint hard enough and some of the world's intellectual streams of thought look like Christianity if you, if you just look at it the right way, like a magic eye poster. And sure, there may be wisdom in some of them. But they're no substitute for Christian doctrine and faith. And yet, I see people every, every week um, citing them, sometimes as equal authority, essentially, with Scripture. So yet, a more insidious way that Antichrist, in, in a, a different ways, attacks the peace and purity of the church. But I'm going to tell you this, it's only Christ who can lead us through these trials. Jesus will be faithful to protect us from outright war waged by Antichrist, and he uh, gives us spiritual sight by his Holy Spirit, to hold his truth fast against the world's philosophies. He is the word of God himself, and the Holy Spirit enlightens the eyes of our hearts to hold fast to his truth. And so Jesus will deliver us safe to his eternal kingdom. And only Christ can teach us how to speak hard truths to each other in love, maintaining the peace and purity of the church. He himself has done it already. Out of love, he delivers us from all his, our sins on the cross, making peace between us and God. And out of love, he sends his Holy Spirit to sanctify us, making us more and more pure and holy. And he does this all perfectly, and he teaches us to pour out the same blessings to others. And so in this time, we must remain vigilant. 
Daniel received this vision of the future so he could be prepared to continue his service in the present. So he could distinguish the true threats from the false ones. So he could see the heavenly significance of what he suffered. So he could see that God would bring the little horn's persecutions to an end. And so with that, he remained vigilant. And on that last day of Belshazzar's reign, he was ready to speak the truth. And even to reject the blessings that Belshazzar uh, offered him, but to trust in God. For Daniel, as we look in chapter 9, we'll see that Daniel was confident that despite his own sins, and despite the sins of his people, that God would rescue them and take care of them and make them safe for the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, through your Son, keep us safe for the end. That you give us wisdom to, to see where to put our energies, how to uh, uh, oppose the, the, the currents of our world, and how to be faithful to you, and how to defend your truth. And Father, we know that you give us a love for one another so that we can uh, be at peace with one another and show that love to each other, take care of one another. And so we pray that you would uh, equip us and enable us to do all these things going forward from here this, uh, this evening through the rest of the week and through the rest of our lives. We look forward to the day when you deliver us safe to your kingdom that is to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.